to be or not to be? That is the question. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, this, this most famous of Shakespearean lines uh, comes from uh, the play Hamlet, where uh, the lead character in Act 3 considers the argument for two seemingly opposite uh, and incompatible choices, whether it is better to continue in life or to face his own death. Knowing that he cannot choose both, he ultimately decides that continuing to live is better than to die because of the unknowns that await us at our death. This morning, uh, we're going to undergo a a similar experience in thought uh, with a similar type of question. We're going to consider a question that has two opposite and and seemingly incompatible options, and we're going to argue the benefits of both sides of the equation and see where we come out in the end. Our question this morning comes not from the great British poet who was a master with words, but instead from the arrival and the appearance of the original word, who was made flesh and came to earth and dwelt among us. The question comes from the gospel readings that we just heard in Luke chapter 2, where the shepherds who were out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night were visited by an angel of the Lord and had the glory of the Lord shining all around them. In that moment, the scriptures tell us that they were filled with fear, but the angel told them not to fear. And so as we continue in our Advent sermon series, looking at the the characters who prepared for Jesus' arrival, this morning we're considering the dilemma of the shepherds as they prepared to meet Jesus at his coming. And we're going to consider how their preparations for meeting Jesus um, that first Advent can, can help us be prepared and be ready to to encounter Jesus when he comes again. So, to fear or not to fear? That is our question. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Now, before we get into the arguments uh, for either side of that equation, I want to ask you to, to consider, how do you feel about the fear of the Lord? As you journey through Advent, And make yourself ready to meet Jesus when he returns to this earth. How would you answer that question? To to fear or not to fear? You know, the doctrine of the fear of the Lord is one that is very prominent in the scriptures, but is not very popular with people, either outside or inside of his church. Those outside of the church who don't believe in God obviously have no fear of him because they don't believe that he exists. There's nothing to be afraid of. And in fact, they often mock and condemn the concept of the fear of God altogether. Bertrand Russell, a British philosopher from the first half of the 20th century, argued that religion always led to cruelty because religion was based on fear and fear was the father of cruelty. Therefore, he said that religion and cruelty always went hand in hand because both had the same root. So the the non-believing world thinks that the fear of God is an an outdated, nonsensical, and and ultimately unhelpful and even destructive concept. And while this has always been the view of those outside of the church, it is increasingly becoming the view of many inside the church as well. 
The pendulum in our culture has swung far away from the fire and brimstone preaching that was common and effective during the time of the Great Awakening in the 1700s, when preachers like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield warned people to flee from the coming wrath of God. Many people responded and came to faith as a result of their preaching. But now those types of preachers are considered an embarrassment to the faith. As the modern church now largely emphasizes that the motivation to follow God should come from more positive emotions, such as love and gratitude for what God has done, rather than negative emotions, such as fear and danger over what might God might do. As our culture and the church have become increasingly uncomfortable with the concept of judgment, we've also become uncomfortable with the use of fear as a motivational force. And many Christians today are convinced that they should never experience any kind of emotional discomfort when contemplating God's holiness or His justice or His coming judgment. The effect of this shift is that we've, we've totally altered the concept of the fear of the Lord to mean that we should have a respect and an awe of the Lord, but that we should not actually be afraid of God in any way. Yet, when we look at this account of the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, when the glory of the Lord shone around them, awe and reverence is not what is being described. Instead, it is fear and terror. The scriptures say that they were filled with fear. The NIV translates it that they were terrified. The New King James Version states that they were greatly afraid. And one very literal translation of the Bible says that they feared with great fear. This wasn't awe and wonder that the shepherds were experiencing in the presence of God. It was an anxiety and a worry. This was, this was real fear. And so I want to begin this morning by making the rather unpopular argument for the importance and the necessity for the real and actual fear of God in our lives. And I want to make that argument in three different ways. First, from a biblical perspective. Second, from a philosophical perspective. And finally, from a, from a natural perspective. So first, a, a biblical perspective. What we see in the scriptures is that over and over and over and over again, from almost the very beginning of the Old Testament to almost the very end of the New Testament, for as long as sin is present in this world and in our lives, we are called to have a fear of the Lord over the consequences that result from our rejection of God and for our disobedience to His ways. And while we are more familiar with and more willing to overlook and disregard as outdated the warnings of the Old Testament prophets about the consequences for breaking God's law, those warnings don't stop at the end of the Old Testament. In fact, with the arrival of Jesus in the beginning of the New Testament and throughout the New Testament, both Jesus and his apostles continue to give warning to God's people about the consequences that come as a result of our disobedience and our rejection of God. The most notable of these may be from Jesus' own lips. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus tells his disciples not to be afraid of, of the men in this world who would persecute them and who could kill their bodies, but not their souls. Instead, Jesus said that they should fear the one who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. He was speaking of his Father in heaven. It was a real warning 
about the wrath and the judgment of God upon sin. Jesus is saying, don't worry about what man can do to you, but do worry very much about what God can do and what God one day will do. It was a warning to be ready for the coming judgment of God because that is something that we do not want to experience. And throughout the Gospels, these warnings continue. In fact, it's really amazing when we read Jesus' words to consider how often he is warning people about the reality of hell and the day of the Lord's judgment that is going to come upon the world. The scriptures of both the Old and the New Testaments regularly give warnings about the judgment of God for our sins, which are intended to cause us to fear in order that we might change our ways. Now, some might argue that's all well and good, but but that all of those examples are all given before the cross, and that warnings were appropriate before the cross, but that that Jesus' death on the cross at the end of the Gospels took away all of our reasons to fear. But if that is the case, then why, in the book of Revelation, after Jesus has died, after he has been raised, after he has ascended to heaven, after he has sent his spirit to dwell with us, after all of salvation history has taken place, save for the final act of his second coming, then why is he still giving warnings to the church? In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus, while speaking to his disciple John, gave several warnings to the churches of that time. To the church in Ephesus, who had lost their first love, Jesus said, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. To the church in Pergamum, he cautioned that those who were being led astray by false teaching, he cautioned them to repent. If not, Jesus said, I will come to you soon and will war against those who have left my teaching with the sword of my mouth. To the church in Thyatira, who was tolerating evil, Jesus warned that those who commit adultery, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. To the church in Sardis, who looked good on the outside, but who weren't so good on the inside, he said, remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. And to Laodicea, Jesus threatened that because you are lukewarm in your faith, I will spit you out of my mouth. So be zealous and repent. These are real threats to the post-resurrection church. Churches just like ours. These are warnings to you and to me. And if you read the book of Revelation, you'll notice that John doesn't follow up on these threats by assuring his hearers that these warnings didn't really apply to them or or that these threats weren't really severe or, or that Jesus didn't really mean what it seems that he means. Jesus doesn't soften the blow at all. Or John doesn't soften the blow at all, or, or seem to be too worried about the, the potential emotional discomfort that these warnings and threats might cause. Instead, he knew that fear-producing threats are necessary and are useful to wake up and to shake up the church, and that God uses them to motivate his people to repentance and to perseverance and to faithfulness, faithful living in their lives. And throughout the scriptures, from the beginning to the end, before the cross and after the cross, God warns, 
not just people outside of the church, but his own people inside of the church. He warns all people to be afraid of the coming judgment against sin. There's a strong biblical argument that we should have a very healthy and real fear of the Lord. There's also a strong philosophical argument for this. Because while much of our culture would argue that fear is a poor motivator and that it is actually an inappropriate motivator, there's actually been research done by argumentation theorists who dispute that culturally accepted belief. They would argue that both the context and the intention of a threat is critical for determining whether fear is an appropriate motivational tool or not. So, for example, if a salesman were to conclude his sales pitch by threatening to punch you in the face if you didn't buy his vacuum cleaner, uh, the context would suggest that that threat is inappropriate. (laughs) He doesn't have the right to assault you for not buying his product. Likewise, you wouldn't want to conclude a marriage proposal with a threat. That wouldn't set you up very well for happily ever after. But they would argue that the threat of fear is very appropriate in other contexts. For example, an academic dean can threaten students with expulsion for plagiarism. Or a judge can and should threaten to take away your license if you've been caught driving drunk. We would all agree that those are appropriate uses of threats, where fear of consequences can rightly motivate one to positive results. So the appropriateness and the legitimacy of a a threat and the use of fear as a motivational tool depends largely upon the context in which it is given and whether or not the threatener has a legitimate authority to make such a threat. The appropriateness of the use of fear also depends on the intentions of the one who is making the threat. Is the threatener cruel, vindictive, arbitrary, and reckless? Or are they loving, caring? And kind. What does the threatener intend by the use of fear? Do they intend to humiliate and manipulate and harm? Or do they intend for the use of fear to lead to well-being and to wholeness and to flourishing and to protection and to life? The intention of the use of fear makes a huge difference. And when we consider all of those criteria in light of our God, as he has revealed in the scriptures and through the life of his Son, What we find is the ultimate authority with the most loving of hearts. He rightly and lovingly warns us of the danger of our misdeeds in order to redirect us into a life of peace and health and wholeness and flourishing and abundance. And we desperately need this because we'll never find motivation to flee from temptation and sin by assuring ourselves that sin isn't dangerous and that our choices don't really matter. Instead, we find motivation to change, at least partly, by recognizing the terrible danger that our sin poses. So philosophically, God's warnings, which produce a fear of the Lord, are right and good and are necessary for his people. And finally, there's a a natural argument for the reality of the fear of the Lord. And that we saw in our other two scripture readings this morning from, from Isaiah and from Revelation. And that reality is simply this, that whether you agree with anything I've said this morning or not, the reality is that whenever a human being encounters the living God in all of his glory, they experience fear. 
In Isaiah chapter 6, when the prophet saw the Lord sitting upon the throne in all of his glory, he cried out, woe is me, I am undone. He knew his sinfulness in light of God's holiness. He knew his smallness in light of God's grandeur. He knew his temporalness in light of God's eternity. He knew that he was nothing compared to the greatness of God. And to experience the reality of his significance in comparison to the majesty of God was a terrifying experience. This is always what happens when human beings encounter the living God in all of his glory. The disciples fell face down at the transfiguration. The apostle Paul was blinded and fell to the ground on the road to Damascus. In Revelation, which we read this morning, when John encountered Jesus in a vision, John fell at Jesus' feet as though he was dead. And I want you to think about that last one for just a minute. Because the apostle John was probably closer to Jesus than any human being has ever been. He was one of Jesus' inner circle with Peter and James, which meant that he spent more time with Jesus and had more intimate moments with Jesus than anyone else who's ever lived. Throughout his gospel, John regularly referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's a description of their close, intimate friendship. If there was anyone who could stand in the presence of the Lord and feel comfortable, it would have been John. And yet here he is. When Jesus is revealed in his glory, John is scared stiff at the feet of the Lord. Years ago, there was a song by Mercy Me entitled, I Can Only Imagine. And in it, the artist imagined how he would respond when he was face to face with the Lord and surrounded by his glory. And throughout the song, the artist muses about whether or not he will dance in the presence of Jesus or sing praise to him or or fall on his knees in gratitude. And, And while all of that is cute to think about, I don't think there's any real question how we will respond when we're surrounded by the glory of God. I don't think we we have to imagine because the scriptures show us over and over and over again, we will come undone. We will fall down like dead before his feet. We will fear with great fear, at least at first. Those are the biblical and the philosophical and the natural arguments for why we should prepare to meet the Lord with fear and trembling. But there's also an argument for why, as we prepare to meet the Lord, that we don't need to fear. And it's convincing as well. And that reason is this. We shouldn't fear because God tells us not to. In the passage from Luke, as the shepherds are cowering in fear, the very first words spoken by that heavenly presence is, fear not. In the midst of their fear, he tells them not to fear. Likewise, in the transfiguration and in John's vision from Revelation, the first words spoken by the Lord to his people as they fell and fainted in his presence were, do not fear. Despite the fear that we naturally have and despite the fear that he warns us to have, God's message in his coming to us is that we do not need to fear. And the reason that we don't need to fear is because As we see from the message of the angel in our passage from Luke, when God comes to us, he brings good news of great joy for all people. God's message to us is a gospel. He brings a word of good news. He brings a message of great joy. He brings a hope 
for everyone. And that good news is this, that a Savior has come. The reason that we don't need to fear God and His coming judgment upon the sin of the world is that because in His love for us, God has sent a Savior to save us from the consequences of our sin. And this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. He came to save us and to rescue us from the consequences of our sin. And upon the cross, Jesus did just that. He paid the penalty of our sins so that we wouldn't have to. He faced the wrath of God's judgment so that we wouldn't have to. He experienced the separation from God that our sin creates so that we wouldn't have to. He died our death so that we wouldn't have to. He went to hell so that we wouldn't have to. And Jesus became a scapegoat, taking our blame and punishment upon himself. He became a sacrificial lamb offered to God on our behalf. He became a substitute, paying the penalty in our place. He became a a propitiation for our sin, appeasing God's wrath towards us by his own death on our behalf. He allowed himself to be abandoned so that we could be accepted. He gave up his riches and became poor so that we could become rich. He left his true home in heaven so that we could find ours there. He allowed his relationship with the Father to be broken so that ours could be reconciled and restored. He faced God's anger towards sin so that we could come boldly and confidently before the throne of God to receive mercy and to find help in our time of need. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. This is God's heart for you and his son. God loved you so much that he sent his only son into this world that whoever would believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. And with a Savior like that, we have no need to fear. When we consider all of this together, what we see is that there's a good argument for the importance and the necessity of the fear of the Lord, and there's a good argument for the importance and the necessity of not fearing God. So where do you find yourself in this equation? As you think about meeting the Lord in all of His glory at His return in the second advent, to fear or not to fear? You know, when Hamlet came to the end of his arguments over whether it was better to be or not to be, knowing that he couldn't choose both, he decided that it was better to live. But as Christians, we know that these two choices aren't actually in opposition to one another. In fact, though they appear to be incompatible, the choices between living and dying are actually inseparable from one another, and they are essential to one another. For we know that whoever would seek to save his life in this world will lose it, but whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. We know that it is by dying to ourselves that we actually live, and that if we try to cling to this life, we'll lose it all. The options between living and dying aren't incompatible with one another. They're actually integral to one another. And the same is true with our question this morning. To fear or not to fear aren't opposite and irreconcilable options. It's not either or. It's actually, and it has to be, both and. 
For if we truly want to understand why we shouldn't fear God, we must first understand why we must fear Him. In order to find safety in a Savior, we must know what it is that we're being saved from. In order to appreciate the life that He gives us, we must first understand the life that He had to give for us. If we're going to have joy in our salvation, we must know the reality of our deserved condemnation. These emotions of of fear and not fear are both real, and they are both true, and they are both important. And they actually have to work together, or else neither of them makes any sense on their own. This is part of the mystery and the majesty of the gospel, the good news of Christ and of God in Jesus Christ. And part of what I love so much about the good news of the gospel is that if we have ears to hear, it will always speak a word to every human heart. And so I want to close this morning by asking, how is the gospel speaking to you today? For some of you, this all may make you realize that you've been taking God's grace for granted, treating it lightly, using it as an excuse to continue in sin. You've grown comfortable with disobedience to God. You've disregarded the Word of God in certain areas of your life. You've started following different teachings in order to justify it. The root of all of this is that you've had no fear of God in regards to the way that you were living your life. To any who that applies for, this message speaks a word of warning that is good news, that there is a post-cross, post-resurrection, real-life threat from Jesus to his church to repent and to return, or else there are real consequences. And it's good news because it gives you the option of repenting and returning. Just because God has become a friend to us does not mean that he has ceased to be a foe towards our sin. He is still coming to judge the world, and we will still fall before him when we meet him in his glory. Are you ready for that? Would you be okay if that happened right now? based on the way that you're living your life. For some, this message will call us to repentance and to the amending of our lives, and that is important, that is necessary, and that is good. For others, though, you may really struggle with the idea of the fear of God in your life. Maybe you've had a father or an authority figure abuse their power and misuse threats against you in the past. As a result, you may have a really difficult time trusting in a God who is to be feared. It may be really hard to love him or to allow him to love you. Or maybe, by nature, you're just naturally a rule follower. And there's never been any great abuse by authority, but you're just naturally timid and afraid around authority figures. Your challenge with God isn't licentiousness, but but legalism. You follow God's rules not because you love him, but because you're afraid of him. In either of these situations... Your past and and your personality may make a relationship with God and his call to submit and surrender to him a very complicated thing. To anyone for who that may be the case, this message speaks a word of good news. You do not need to be afraid in the presence of God. He loves you so much that he has come not to punish you but to protect you. He wants you to follow his ways, not for his sake, but for yours. He has come near, not to put you in harm's way, but to stand in harm's way on your behalf. 
We have a God whose perfect love can drive out your fear. To anyone for whom that challenge may be the case, God's word to you this morning is fear not. So, how is the Lord speaking to you today? How would he have you prepare and make yourself ready for his return? Throughout the rest of this season of Advent, and for the remainder of all of our lives, when we consider the question, to fear or not to fear, let us be able, in healthy and godly ways, to answer yes. And let us make ourselves ready in both of these responses for his future return. Amen. And now, uh, let us confess our faith uh, and acknowledge what we believe to be true about our God, who will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, uh, but who has come to rescue us from our sin. Let us confirm what we believe in him through the words of the Nicene Creed. Saying together, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that